This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Malcolm Keating, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Karen Frost Arnold. Karen is associate professor of philosophy at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, and also visiting associate professor at the African Center for Epistemology and Philosophy of Science at the University of Johannesburg. She works centrally in the area of social epistemology, feminist philosophy, and philosophy of science. But one unifying theme of her research is the philosophy of the internet. Her new book has just been published with Oxford University Press. It's titled, Who Should We Be Online? A Social Epistemology for the Internet. Now, I suppose that it goes without saying that the internet plays a central role in how we communicate, how we share information, how we disseminate ideas, how we maintain our social connections, and even conduct business. I also suppose that it goes without saying that the internet exacerbates existing problems regarding irrationality, bias, wrongful discrimination, forms of exploitation and dehumanization. But the internet also gives rise to new ethical and epistemological problems. I'm thinking here of fake news, the phenomenon of sock puppetry, various kinds of hoaxes that are made possible by the internet, and various forms of disinformation that also seem to be made possible by the internet. So in Who Should We Be Online, Karen Frost Arnold proposes a multi-layered social epistemology designed to assist us in navigating the fraught moral epistemic landscape of the online world. Along the way, she develops a framework for thinking about how we should go about investigating the normative questions that are posed by the internet. Now, as usual, there's a whole lot to talk about, a lot of good philosophical questions afoot. But as we usually begin, why don't we begin with our guest? Hello, Karen. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you today? I'm good. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you too. I really, really enjoyed the book. Um, but before we get to the book, you know, uh, we begin these um, uh, these episodes with the author uh, saying some things uh, about herself. Uh, why don't you start us off that way? Uh, tell us a bit about yourself. Thanks. Um, well, I mean, it might not be obvious from my accent, but I'm actually originally from Britain. Um, all of my family is British, and I lived there till I was 12. Um, when I was 12, we moved to California, and that's where I went to high school. I've lived in a bunch of different places in the U.S. I went to college just outside of Boston at Wellesley College. 
Um, that's why I fell in love with philosophy. There's a really incredible intellectual community there and really supportive philosophy department. So that's where my love of philosophy started. Um, after college, I went to grad school at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, fell in love with the Steelers and everything Pittsburgh, um, <laughs> Groundhogs and everything Pennsylvania. Um, I also, when I was there, was taking a seminar on bioethics with Lisa Parker, and I read Annette Byers Trust and Antitrust. And that's mm. where my just, I mean, you could call it obsession with thinking about trust started. Um, I really admire her work. And so I ended up um, even though I went to grad school to work on philosophy of science, I managed to combine that. So I ended up writing my dissertation on trust in science. Um, I actually finished up my dissertation while I was living outside of Pittsburgh in Las Vegas for three years, which was interesting. And after that, um, I moved to kind of the opposite place in the United States from Las Vegas. I now live in a tiny town in upstate New York, um, <laughs> and I teach at Hobart and William Smith. Um, and I'm also a visiting professor at the University of Johannesburg for the next three years, which is a really vibrant intellectual community um, that I'm really excited to be a part of. I live with my husband and two cats and a bunny. <laughs> uh, and the bunny lives inside the house? The bunny does live inside. The bunny yeah. is rescued yeah. from my neighbors who wanted to throw it away. So her name is oh. Snuffles, and she lives in the house with us. Uh, they are trainable animals, I'm to Yeah, she's yeah. fun. She's a little loaf. That's she's right. very funny. <laughs> That's wonderful. Can I ask you about Vegas? So I got married in Las Vegas. Las Vegas. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I've never gambled, uh, mm. but Las Vegas always strikes me as a philosophically interesting place. Oh my gosh. It's a fascinating. There's so many different types of people who live there while we were there. It's one of the gro fastest growing cities in the U S. Um, I mean, it was, it was an interesting place to live. I also don't gamble. So, um, when people would come to visit, they're like, Oh, we know someone who lives in Vegas. We can come and party. It'd be amazing. And, uh, we would take them out for nice long hikes in the beautiful nature around. And so, I mean, there's so much to do there, but I think I sort of missed out on some of what's sort of typically Vegas. Cause that's not really my thing, but it's a beautiful place with so many interesting people i was really lucky to live there in many ways but maybe not for me long term uh yeah i could i could understand that i last time i was there i was observing people um taking selfies in front of the eiffel tower yes. and I, yeah. I found myself wondering whether they were pretending to be in what were they doing oh they you could do so many in, things yeah was they're not pretending to be in paris right it's i mean it <laughs> The, the the plaque on the the for those who don't know the plaque on the Eiffel Tower outside the Paris Hotel says in English Eiffel Tower. No, it does. <laughs> it does. So it's yeah. I, it's a, this is a philosophically interesting like so so fake. It's got its own realness to it. Kind oh my of, gosh! Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> it has wow. its own world, its own aesthetic, its own sort of like uh, yeah facsimiles are the real. It's very interesting place. Well, uh, this is a nice segue, I think. Uh, 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 to talking about your book, yeah, just like <laughs> maybe, the internet. <laughs> maybe the internet is kind of a uh, uh, is is Vegas like in this respect. It so, is. Um, let's begin uh, at the beginning. So, um, the, the analysis you offer in Who Should We Be Online um, is informed by and applies. We even might say um, a, a kind of uh, general a framework in social epistemology or maybe a collection of frameworks, a conjunction mm -hmm. of uh, various um, social epistemic commitments. Um, 
together, they form uh, an acronym, which I will allow you to pronounce. Um, but can you tell us um, uh, about uh, the, 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 the components uh, of, uh, of the social epistemic framework that, uh, that the book is organized around? Yeah, yeah. So I call it the FOVIVI framework. So that's F-O-V-I-V-I. I know it's not super catchy. Um, but so so the idea here is what I wanted to do in the book was to sort of do proof of concept of a kind of a, a research program in what I call socially situated epistemology of the internet. So this approach really sort of recognizes that we're not just generic users of the internet. We're not what I call Cartesian cognizers with smartphones. We were embodied beings. We're raced. We're gendered. We're interacting with each other um, in the midst of various different systems of power and oppression. And so, what I wanted to do in the book was to draw on a lot of really interesting inter- interdisciplinary work um, in internet studies, and also draw on all of these rich tools that we have in social epistemology to do some applied epistemology. And so, I wanted to say, okay, look, social epistemologists have developed some really useful tools and frameworks for thinking about um, us as knowers in our social context. So, um, so the Fovivi framework lays out five different sets of tools that philosophers have developed. So, I'll, I'll just like say something about each of them. So, the the F and the O. Those stands for feminist accounts of objectivity. So, right, feminists have long argued that objectivity is an important epistemic value, um, that there are things that we can do to reduce and manage bias, even though if we probably can't eradicate it, right? So um, getting rid of bias, right, sexist bias, racist bias is an important kind of epistemic goal. And there are actually things we can do, right? So I draw on the work of feminist empiricists like Helen, Helen Longinot, um, and also um, feminist standpoint theorists like Sandra Harding, um, and also Kristen Intiman's um, combination of these two frameworks in what she calls feminist standpoint empiricism, right? So, so this approach argues that um, epistemic communities that center the voices of marginalized people are epistemically superior to communities that lack those voices or suppress them or don't pay attention to them. Um, we can weed out biases from dominant traditions and assumptions if we include those voices and take their transformative criticisms and standpoints seriously. So that's one set of frameworks. So that's the first one. The first V um, is the second framework that stands for veritism. So I think that um, Alvin Goldman's veritistic systems um, oriented social epistemology is a really useful framework for thinking about the internet because it values truth, right? So on this consequentialist framework, um, we evaluate social practices and institutions by how well they enable people to form beliefs, and true beliefs is the goal, um, and weed out errors. So we can look at um, social practices and institutions and technological design features and ask, to what extent are they helping people form true beliefs? To what extent are they circulating errors or false beliefs? Um, And I think this framework fits really well with feminist epistemology, because right, the, the feminist epistemologists have been arguing that epistemic communities that include the voices of marginalized people are better able to detect errors, to weed out um, false claims, and also to provide new truths that might add to um, our repertoire of, of true beliefs that we can use to understand the world. So veritism helps us answer questions like, how do um, our social practices of interacting together online, how do the ways that our social 
um, media platforms are set up, how do they help us form true beliefs? Um, how do they spread ignorance? And so ignorance is actually the third framework. So that's the first I. So the epistemologies of ignorance literature is really useful because it helps us see that ignorance is not just sort of a passive absence of knowledge, but it's something that's actively produced and sustained. Um, and, and this literature has really ballooned in recent years in ways that are really helpful because it helps us see sort of a multiple layers at which our, um, our knowledge practices actually produce and maintain ignorance. So we can think of our individual habits of willful ignorance turning away from the truth. We can think of social practices. Um, so uh, I find Charles Mill's work really helpful here in thinking about um, uh, how that can um, sustain ignorance. We can think about institutional policies, right? As a philosopher of science, I'm really interested in corporate interests and how um, corporate um, agents can often manipulate science and, and spread ignorance. I think the climate science um, issues are really helpful here. So that's the I. Um, the next V stands for virtue epistemology. So that's the fourth framework. So virtue epistemology draws our attention to our epistemic agency. So we can cultivate epistemic agents and we can think about what kind of a person do I want to be on the internet? And I think uh, socially situated vir virtue epistemology is really helpful because it, it centers our attention on how our social location shapes the kinds of habits that we're likely to develop. And it gets us to think about feedback loops between our social structures and our epistemic virtues. So for the internet, we can think about, okay, how is this platform set up? How are people behaving on this platform? Am I being encouraged to develop certain kinds of epistemic vices? How can I push back against this? Or what kind of epistemic virtues are permitted or encouraged by our online um, uh, technological design uh, features that we're living with and also our social habits on the internet. And then the last framework, that's the last I, stands for injustice. So here I'm thinking about the epistemic injustice literature that has really grown recently. So um, this literature draws our attention to the way in which injustice shapes a lot of our epistemic interactions. And there are many different ways that injustice epistemically harms marginalized people. And we see that all the time on the internet. We can think about the ways that online harassment um, which data shows disproportionately targets women, people of color, queer folks, right? That online harassment disproportionately silences people, excludes them from epistemic communities. We can think about how do we perpetrate testimonial injustice online. We can think about how does hermeneutical injustice operate online so that certain kinds of people's speech is misunderstood. Um, and we can think about to bring all sort of all of these frameworks together, what kinds of virtues and structural changes are needed to avoid epistemic injustice in ways so that the community can get access to truths that are going to help us form true beliefs and also weed out biases that um, are preventing us from really forming knowledge in objective ways. So those are the five frameworks that I bring together in the book. That's fabulous. And I take it that there's, um, uh, just to punctuate a, a point that you make uh, throughout the book, there's a kind of urgency, I think, <laughs> uh, given that, um, you know, the, the, the data that we have now, um, particularly about, you know, sort of, uh, Western developed democracies and the, the, the people who live in them, um, the extent to which people get their information, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, doing their own research and this sort of thing, um, on the internet is, is, you know, is kind of staggering when you think about it. So to think that, you know, there are these, um, there's this relatively from the, from the point of view of, uh, the, from the long run, um, you know, this relatively new, um, instrument, uh, to, in the broad sense, 
uh, that um, uh, an unusually large number of people have very quickly turned to as their main way of being informed about the world, learning about things, connecting with other people. I say, well, if it if in that very medium there are new pitfalls and opportunities, uh, theorizing all of that seems all the more um, urgent. Does that sound right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, and I, and I think it's also this is something that you know I really want to focus on more going forward in the book. It, you know, it's not just in the West, right? All over the world, right? And we can think about the ways that our social platforms are damaging to democracies, the ways in which Facebook has allowed hate speech to really fuel um, genocides around the world, right? So I think that, yeah, there's a there's lots of urgency to this, right? People's um, lives are being damaged through stuff that's happening online. And also our ability to understand the world and all of the many crises that we're dealing with right now is right. really affected by, as you said, this being a major tool for by which we come to understand ourselves and the world around us. Yeah, I, I really feel, in a way, I feel uh, it's quite an overwhelming book instead of used <laughs> to think about because there are so many very pressing problems to, to right. deal with. Yeah. Well, great. Let's well, let's turn to one of them, and 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 uh, uh, to the, the book addresses um, uh, several distinct uh, sites of um, sort of social epistemic normative concern. Um, so you deploy uh, the the tools of the FOFIVI frameworks um, in thinking through a handful of um, normative problems that the, are posed by the online world. And um, uh, where the book begins uh, is um, with content moderation. Um, and you know, I I take it I you know I'm not um, uh, I won't have been the only one in reading your book to have thought when someone mentions content moderation to instantly think of censorship and free speech and the you know the the marketplace of ideas stuff and and all those good million sort of <laughs> uh, uh, um, issues um, and I have to say you know it came as a bit of a revelation to me I said well wait a minute there's a whole other set of issues about the people doing the moderating. <laughs> so um, uh, you, you're not, I don't know, mainly, but part of the concern of your discussion of content moderation, maybe a large part of that concern is with the epistemic labor of the people whose task it is, who are employed as the people who are looking at all of the objectionable content and, you know, removing it. Um, can you tell us, uh, so, uh, I'm glad to have read the book for lots of reasons, but recognizing that uh, uh, that this is part of the normative, um, uh, um, this is part of what's at issue normatively in content moderation too, uh, was a real benefit to me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the analysis there? Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's lots of really interesting stuff about the censorship issues here. But I think also if we turn and look at the work that, that these folks are doing, we're going to see we're actually in really an epistemically nightmarish situation here. Um, so I really focus on commercial content moderators. So these are the folks who are working for Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, who, like you said, are making decisions about what gets removed from the internet. They're often not working directly for these companies. They're working for sort of um, like subcontracting companies. And and they are looking, like sifting through all of the content, videos, posts that have been reported as problematic or violating the 
um, social media platforms, terms of service or their community policies. Um, and Sarah Roberts, who's really sort of the premier researcher on this issue, who drew a lot of people's attention to this, she describes this as kind of an assembly line kind of work that the social media companies have set up. So there are folks um, uh, for the content from the United States is often being moderated by folks in the Philippines and India, right? So the folks sitting in um, large office uh, buildings in front of a computer for hours a day, just being fed an endless stream of the worst of the internet. And they have to make decisions. Um, they're expected to do it very quickly about whether a post or video should be deleted, removed, whether a user should be um, sanctioned for posting it, whether they should be suspended or, or removed from the platform. And they're doing this at extremely um, fast speeds. So there's a, a really wonderful, but it's it's very difficult to watch documentary called The Cleaners. And in that, um, that's about content moderators in the Philippines. One of the moderators talks about how the expectation is that he will look at 25,000 images a day. And this is the worst of the worst. Um, um, just as a, a heads up for, um, for you, I'm going to just give it some a couple of sort of troubling examples. Just this week, um, a couple of days before I'm talking to you, there was an article that came out about a lawsuit that's being filed by some moderators from Kenya who were working um, for Facebook, uh, subcontracting, working for Facebook. And I'll just read you a quote from what they were, from they were doing. Um, so um, examples of the posts that they viewed on a daily basis include pictures and videos of people being raped, children being molested, and people being slaughtered or burnt alive. Some of them even saw their own relatives die on the platform. So these are folks who are being paid pennies to watch incredibly disturbing content. So the folks in Kenya were being paid $2.20 an hour. Um, they did not have adequate counseling. Many of them developed um, symptoms of PTSD. So they're doing this work uh, under really terrible conditions, um, and the social media companies are, are making billions of, of dollars right off of, off of this labor. And you might say, okay, this is clearly a moral um, problem. This is really an ethical nightmare. But in the chapter, I also argue this is really an epistemic nightmare too. So it's relevant to epistemologists because if you think about where the social epistemology literature has gone in recent years, we've really come to have a better understanding of how very difficult it is for us to understand each other, to understand um, exactly what it is that somebody's saying, um, to be able to um, come to know people who are different than us, um, to be able to fully appreciate um, different people's perspectives, right? So if we think about the epistemic injustice literature, we realize that there are all of these barriers that can sort of prevent us from fully giving uptake to what people are saying or understanding their speech. Um, so if we think about sort of this epist epistemological picture we get where it's actually quite difficult to understand the world around us and interpret, say, pictures or um, interpret people's speech. And then contrast that with how the social media companies have set up their labor model, where they can expect people to make incredibly quick judgments about somebody's speech and determine whether it's hate speech or whether it's false or whether this video of something that's happening in the Syrian civil war is relevant or not. And to make these decisions really quickly, we can see that it's really an epistemic um, disaster here. So it's problematic for us as an online community that we have these very consequential decisions being made by folks who are often far removed from the communities 
um, whose content they're moderating, who they don't have the time to necessarily develop relationships with folks so that they can understand the content well. They don't necessarily have time to develop the relevant epistemic virtues that we've learned are important for avoiding things like testimonial injustice or hermeneutical injustice. Um, so that's one set of problems. It's not well set up to provide reliable, objective moderation. Another problem that I talk about in the chapter is that the labor model of commercial content moderation perpetrates a particular kind of epistemic injustice against the moderators. Um, so I call this epistemic dumping. So here... Um, I find it really helpful to notice that a bunch of internet study scholars, Sarah Roberts, Sarah Jung, often use metaphors of garbage and trash to talk about the content that the moderators are using right there, sorting through the trash of the internet, taking out the garbage. And I was thinking that epistemic communities also produce garbage or trash, right? So as we're producing knowledge together, if we're having a conversation or in my classroom, right, you might be trying to understand a text and we might sort of produce unwanted byproducts in our attempts to produce knowledge, right? We, we might sometimes come across a misinterpretation of a text, or we might develop a false belief in attempting to understand something. So that's what I'm calling epistemic trash. And epistemic trash is not all alike. Some of it is what I call toxic epistemic trash, right? So the kinds of false beliefs that are part of what Charles Mills calls white ignorance, right? Or the willful hermeneutical ignorance that Gail Polhouse talks about. Mm -hmm. These are kinds of harmful types of epistemic trash. And so um, in the chapter, I argue that there's this um, kind of phenomenon of epistemic dumping that is happening online and also in other communities where there are disproportionately some groups who are tasked with sorting through the toxic epistemic trash of our communities, dealing with it, making decisions about how it should be handled. And there's often a lack of respect for their um, skills in handling toxic epistemic trash, making decisions, um, and also dismissive of the of the very labor that it takes. So we often exploit people's labor when we dump our epistemic trash on them. So one of the other examples, as I give, is often, you know, we can think about in our academic communities, right? Often marginalized faculty members are um, people of color or trans faculty are often the ones who are dealing with the aftermath of, say, an act of hate speech on campus or somebody's right. teaching material in a racist or transphobic way, right? Often they're the ones who have to take out the epistemic trash and deal with these problems in our epistemic communities. So I think that dumping um, the trash of our online communities on moderators is problematic and maybe helps us think about some of the ways in which we are tending to dump our trash on, on some groups in other epistemic communities, too. Right. And I guess that, um, you know, maybe a related but distinct dimension of this is that the moderators, um, you know, one way to understand what they're doing is protecting us from something. Right. And so um, <clears throat> that they're uh, tasked with something that we would say is very vital to the health of our community, uh, you know, sort of protecting us from those images and from, uh, um, uh, you know, protecting the internet from becoming just that's that kind of cesspool. <laughs> right. Um, and then so that the working conditions, the epistemic conditions that all of these are so um, depleted. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, seems like just this, a, 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 another troubling aspect of this that maybe um, uh, adds to uh, uh, 
Yeah, that, that adds to the badness of it all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the social media companies are not showing respect for the kinds of epistemic skills that are involved in the work that's being done here. And as you said, right. it's incredibly vital. It has really, learning about this has changed my relationship to the internet, right? So, I mean, I already think it's a cesspool and I'm not even seeing most of this stuff, right? And so right. my nice sort of sanitized version of the internet, I'm getting that at the expense of somebody else often being quite traumatized by what they're being exposed to, working really hard to protect me from that and really developing important epistemic skills that that are we're as a society not respecting not affording them the time and the resources to develop and be compensated for that epistemic labor right can, can i i don't think this comes up in the book but you know just a question that this raises mm -hmm. going to your um uh, to the second V, uh, <laughs> the virtue part. Um, and this might be more of a question about virtue um, uh, in the, the sort of more generic sense. I'm not sure whether this is, this is a question about epistemic virtue as such or virtue in a, mm -hmm. in a broader sort of um, uh, broader characterological sense. Um, do we have any data about whether um, repeated exposure to the kind of imagery uh, the kind of material that moderators um, uh, are uh, are by their work exposed to, um, you know, you know, there's that the, that thought in Aristotle that you know, if you're exposed to virtuous people, that's part of you know, seeing the courageous person be courageous is one is is an essential part of developing the 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 the, the virtues um, is. Um, uh, and similarly, uh, you know, being exposed to the vices, you know, can, you know, can make your soul bad, you know? Okay. Um, so I'm just wondering, like, do we have any data on, apart from the, apart from the trauma, to say apart from it, I don't mean to, to diminish it, apart from the trauma, which is an important part, piece of this puzzle, um, does exposure to this, to this kind of material, um, I guess I would expect it to have these sort of, um, uh, these side effects, you know, that, that make people not only, doesn't only traumatize people, but um, makes them worse in other kinds of ways? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm not aware of any specific data on that, although there are anecdotes that it very much destroys people's ability to trust other people, right? Yeah, that's and that, good. And that seems so, right? So there, um, there are stories of um, content moderators being afraid to leave um, their children at home with folks, or um, Rosalind Bowden, who's um, a content moderator who was at a conference um, and shared, shared this anecdote. She um, she worked at MySpace for years, and she said after working at MySpace doing moderation, she she didn't want to touch anybody. She didn't want to shake anybody's hand because she just learned how terrible people were, right? So so it's not just like that as a kind of trauma, but like distrust of other people is one of the things that also makes us vulnerable to things like believing conspiracy theories, right? So I, I'm not aware of data of that, but um, profound distrust of other people and seeing the worst of them. Um, I think that there's, that would be a very interesting research question to see whether that affects their sort of epistemic capacities. Yeah. Oh, it just keeps getting worse. Um, yes. So, uh, so let's. That's that's all very interesting. So the the third chapter now, just moving on, mm -hmm. um, begins with um, you know a description of uh, you know at the time uh, an episode that I had heard of at the time, and then you know promptly uh, you know sort of had forgotten. Um, but um, you know an episode of online deception occurring during um, in two thousand eleven during the Syrian uprising. Um, 
Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the deception and then um, uh, uh, sort of run us through your analysis of a, I think, a really important distinction that you that you draw uh, between um, online sort of imposters and online tricksters? Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So actually, this is the case that got me obsessed with epistemology of the Internet. So I um, so I heard about this blog. It's called A Gay Girl in Damascus, and it purported to be written by Amina Araf, um, who was a Syrian-American lesbian living in Damascus in the midst of the Syrian uprising, right? So it's part of the Arab Spring. Um, she's presenting herself as an activist who's involved in these circles. Um, and be- partly because of state censorship, a lot of folks are reading this blog and interviewing Amina, like Western journalists, to try and learn about the Arab Spring and the uprising. So it's widely read um, in in the US and and Europe and places like that. And um, one day on the blog, um, somebody posts saying that Amina had been kidnapped by the Assad regime. And so a lot of press and concerns about getting Amina released um, came up. And in sort of the aftermath of that, it was revealed that it was all a hoax, right? So the blog was actually written by Tom McMaster, who was an American living in Edinburgh at the time. And so I identified this McMaster as what I call an um, online imposter, right? So um, online imposters are folks who betray expectations of authenticity, right? Presenting yourself in an authentic way. And they do that in ways that risk harm to epistemic communities. And and so I I talk about all of the different kinds of harms that this imposter um, kind of exemplifies, right? So um, this, this connects to feminist accounts of objectivity, right? So um, objectivity is an important value. It's important to try and get a um, reduce the kinds of biases that we're um, liable to in trying to understand world events like the Syrian uprising. And imposters can um, prevent us from engaging in some important practices of objectivity. So I argue that trust is really central to these practices of objectivity, right? Um the voices of marginalized people are really helpful for correcting biases, but they have to have trust in themselves that their voices and what they have to say is worth listening to. They also have to be trusted by other people. They have their voices and criticisms and concerns have to be listened to. And also everybody has to have trust in the avenues through which their voices and their criticisms and concerns are being spread. And McMaster undermined all three types of trust that are really important for practices of objectivity. He spread a bunch of stereotypes about um, Middle Eastern women as being passive and unempowered and presented Amina as this empowered American who was enlightening um, Syrian lesbians in really problematic ways. So he's spreading stereotypes stereotypes, which can cast doubt um, and undermine the trust that folks have in um, those folks and in activists. And I think more sort of obviously in something that if people were aware of at the time is that this one case of this hoax really undermined people's trust in the internet, right? So everybody started to say, well, okay, this one Middle Eastern activist was a hoax, but what about all of these other folks who we've been relying on for sort of on the ground information about the Arab Spring? And so it undermines people's trust in the very sort of like mechanisms by which we get to hear from voices who might otherwise not be listened to. So imposters can do significant epistemic harm. So in the chapter, I argue that trustworthiness um, is an important epistemic virtue. Um, and we need to be careful about when we present ourselves in inauthentic ways on the internet. But that also really needs to be qualified, right? Because one of the wonderful things about the internet is it, it can be a space for play and for humor and for us to learn about ourselves. And also, as I argue, for really useful cases of trickery. So 
I define um, tricksters as folks who intentionally betray expectations of authenticity in epistemically virtuous acts of resistance. So there can be really useful ways in which sometimes we betray trust. And this I take back to Annette Byer, right? She always argued that, you know, some types of trust um, shouldn't be um uh, lived up to, but sometimes betraying the trust of the exploiter is actually a virtuous act, right? Um, Maria Lagones has this beautiful quote where she says that there are some truths that only the fool can speak and only the trickster can play out without harm. So sometimes marginalized people can strategically use ignorance to trick privileged people into learning about their own biases and prejudice. And there are tons of really interesting activist folks who, um, so use these terms like culture jamming or media activism, who folks who draw attention to issues that have been overlooked by engaging um, in online acts of trickery. So I use this example of the yes men who are activists and, and performance artists. Um, and they do engage in really interesting pranks where they create fake websites, um, create fake press releases to gain access to spaces to pretend to be somebody they're not, and then draw attention to issues. So for example, in 2009, they perpetrated this really interesting hoax at the COP15 climate summit in Copenhagen, where they held this fake press conference with a fake Canadian um, government representative and a fake Ugandan government representative. And they were, the Canadian government was announcing, we're going to dr- dramatically reduce our climate emissions and we're going to start a, a program of um, uh, climate reparations for vulnerable countries. And then they created, the Yes Men created fake press releases. They got press to start reporting, oh, can- Canada's doing this. And um, they used fake Twitter accounts to spread this message. And when the hoax was revealed, um, it got more press attention. So the yes men think of what they're doing as um, sort of hacking the media system to um, bypass the ways in which often powerful state entities and corporate entities can kind of set the narrative, right? Can use their outsized power to prevent us from really talking about what's possible, right? So a lot of people who believed, oh gosh, the Canadian government is actually doing this, realize that it's possible for them to do this and that they're actively choosing not to. So there's a real sort of really interesting epistemic questions about when does sometimes trickery um, sort of betray our trust in really in ways that actually undermine um, the problematic exclusivity of our epistemic communities, that sometimes some messages are not heard and we can break through with trickery. And the sort of humor of the internet um, makes that really interesting in ways that can really draw attention to issues that I think are important. So that's sort of the distinction that I draw in that chapter. Well, it's very interesting. You know, part of me in, in reading through that chapter, um, I was reminded of a um, of some data that I saw about the Colbert report. Yeah, <laughs> perfect. Yes. Where and again, I you know I didn't follow up to see whether you know these these data uh, held up, but um, at the height of the the Colbert report's uh, popularity, there was some reason to think that um, a um, a non negligible number of um, conservative viewers believed that Stephen Colbert was actually a conservative excellent and that the trick was on the liberals mm. uh, because he was portraying the liberal caricature of what conservatives are that's fascinating but that he himself was actually um that the man was uh was not um was actually a conservative and the joke was on the liberals that's fascinating 
<laughs> I had not heard that. That's so interesting. <laughs> um, right. Uh, and then just to think about how the, the, the Daily Show at its prime when Stewart was the host, uh, you know, again, a non-negligible number of people uh, within a certain uh, age group uh, got their news from the Daily mm-hmm. Show. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And you can think of often the ways in which they often on the Daily Show and Colbert Report, they sort of tricked people into revealing truths that they wouldn't normally reveal sort of yeah, yeah. through like, those so those interviews. And that that's epistemically fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Very, 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 very interesting. So that distinction is very helpful uh, in, in, in sort of uh, in, in, uh, in thinking about that. There was a uh, when John Stewart was on, I guess it was on Firing Line, or was it mm. Firing Line? Uh, or no, not Crossfire, whatever. Yes, the, the, that the, epic moment. Right, yes. where you know he kept pointing out, it's like mine's a, co- I'm a comedy show, exactly. <laughs> you know? um, uh, which um, I think Tucker Carlson was the conservative on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Just was not sort of wasn't wasn't drawing the kind of distinction that you draw right between in, between uh, posing or no, imposturing. And okay, great. Um, so the, the fourth chapter um uh which is about fakes about fakers mm-hmm. um so there's an analysis that you develop where um it's not only uh, an analysis of what fake news is which um you know is very interesting that's even a deep philosophical question mm-hmm, what is fake mm-hmm. news um but also you give an account that not only identifies it gives an, a view of what fake news is but um helps us understand the nature of the problem mm-hmm. that fake news poses which i think are two things that aren't often as deeply connected in the philosophical literature as they need to be um so um uh, so i appreciated the analysis just for that sort of second order recognition mm-hmm. that you know, mm-hmm. that these two things are should be tethered much more tightly than typically are. Can you tell us a little bit about the the account of fakery? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, as you sort of suggested, I'm not quite so um, focusing on defining fake news. There's a bunch of really interesting accounts of that, right, that attempt to distinguish it from other terms like propaganda or disinformation or misinformation. And Axel Gelfeld and, um, and, and Andrew Chag- Chadwick both have um, definitions of fake news that I, I use in, in the chapter that I think are really helpful. Right. Um, so like Andrew Chadwick, for example, identifies fake news as what he calls the hacking of the hybrid media system. And here I think it's helpful, like this term, the hybrid media system, right, draws our attention to the fact that we're now living in a moment in which the boundaries between old and new media are blurred. It doesn't really make much sense to, to sort of draw a distinction between traditional offline media and online media. All of these boundaries are blurred right, blurred right now. So we're dealing with a hybrid media system. And it's being hacked. It's being taken advantage of by various kinds of actors for various kinds of reasons. And so what I really want to do in the chapter is outline why this is such a complicated and serious problem and one where I think it's really valuable for social epistemologists to be thinking about it. So I identify um, different sets of causes of this, what I'm calling like the fake news problem, right? And, and one of the sets of causes is like psychological or cognitive kinds of problems, right? So fake fakers of various kinds of ilk, right, take advantage of our cognitive heuristics that we often use to sort of um, evaluate online content. They take advantage of the fact that if we see a, a message multiple times, we will automatically sort of tend to think that it's more likely to be true, right? So there's really interesting stuff to learn from cognitive psychology about why this is a complicated problem. There's also a host of technological problems of the um, fake news problem, right? So we can talk about how does search engine autocomplete 
um, play into this problem. We can think, and there's been lots of great philosophical literature about filtering algorithms, right? I think about filter bubbles and echo chambers. We can also think about the vulnerability of social media platforms to bots and coordinated attacks that make fake news easier. We can also think about the um, incentives that are provided by the um, ad um, markets that the um, search engine companies have created and the incentives that they provide for people to create fake news. And there's also a really complicated set of social um, contexts that are contributing to this problem of fake news, right? So we see the rise of right-wing extremists and hate groups who are coordinating quite sophisticated disinformation campaigns. We can think about problems with media literacy. There's this great um, essay by Dana Boyd that I really like where she talks about how we've been sort of teaching our students for years to um, not cite Wikipedia in our papers and instead do research by yourself and Google stuff, right? And the ways in which that kind of media literacy actually maybe has backfired. That right. Wikipedia has all these really interesting sort of um, social epistemic mechanisms for um, resisting disinformation campaigns. And actually, um, Google search engine has actually turned out to be sort of more vulnerable to that, right? And then I also talk about there's what I call this epistemic double bind facing journalists, where on the one hand, if there's this fake news story out there, they might feel pressure to cover it and have good reason to cover it. But then they're also, right, feeding this sort of repetition of the story. So it's a super complicated problem. And, it, and it's one that I think social epistemologists have good reason to think about, right? So if we're thinking about some of the frameworks that I use in the book, right, the most obvious one is often, obviously, veritas are going to be concerned about fake news because it's right. spreading false beliefs and it makes us more liable to that. So this hybrid media system with all of its vulnerabilities to fake news is really epistemically um, uh, compromised in many ways. But I also sort of build on the argument from the previous chapter about imposters and talk about how fake news is a problem because it's also spreading distrust in um, our online platforms and our media system, right? So it's, it's very common now and easy to just sort of dunk on the internet. Oh, it's a, it's a cesspool. Oh, it's just, you know, a, a space for misinformation. But um, I don't want to provide a rosy picture of it, but more a balanced picture. It is also an incredible epistemic tool, right? It enables us to hear about voices that are, have been previously sort of filtered out through various gatekeepers. It, it enables marginalized people to often provide an unfiltered account of their own lives and challenge for various dominant narratives. So it's a really sort of an epistemic problem that this fake news problem has caused a lot of people to really distrust our media system, distrust what they read online, right? So I think this sort of spreading distrust is a real serious epistemic problem. But I want to just emphasize quickly, it's, I don't want to also play into sort of these sort of nostalgic narratives that sometimes come up where people right. are like, oh, we, you know, Lao live in a post-truth world where people no longer believe in the truth and people used to trust these neutral institutions that would tell us the truth, but now we no longer do that. And I think Josh um, Habgood um, Coote has really written some yeah. interesting stuff that's been helpful for me on this, right? That, you know, and also Naomi Shima wrote this beautiful paper back, I think, in 2001. It's like objectivity as trustworthiness, where mm -hmm. she argued that right, our institutions have never been neutral, right? Marginalized right. people have always had reasons to distrust um, the knowledge that is purported to uh, be authoritative and shared, right? And so the media has also never been neutral. Um, so I don't want to argue that, you know, now we're in this problematic field where nobody distrusts and, and people used to trust. But this is a problem that we need to confront. And I think some of our epistemic tools could be really useful in, in sort of suggesting things that we could be doing on these fronts. Great. Um, 
yeah, the the sort of uh, the the nostalgic view of Walter Cronkite is just yeah. you know, <laughs> can't possibly be correct. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it never was as good as people believe. Some people yeah, believe it was. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so um, it, the, the 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 I'll say the um, the, the chapter of the book, the discussion of the book that you know, struck me as really most sort of engaging and alluring is the, the chapter on the, the fifth chapter, which is about online lurkers. Cool. Um, uh, you, uh, you discuss lurking, what lurking is, um, and you, you provide an analysis that I, I, I think sort of nails it, right? It's a, it's a normatively complicated mm-hmm. <laughs> activity, mm-hmm. um, uh, that can be beneficial in certain ways to the lurkers, can be harmful in other ways to the lurkers and to the, those who are lurked upon, lurked upon, is that the right yeah. way? Those, those <laughs> who are the object of the lurking. Yes. Um, so, um, you develop a conception, uh, a virtuous, so this is back mm-hmm. to the second V, uh, mm-hmm. the, a virtuous uh, uh, lurking activity. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us a bit about the about the, the phenomena that that mm-hmm. uh, of lurking and uh, and some of the normative issues that you address? Yeah, so I mean, I identify as a lurker, right? So I read a lot more on the internet. I spent hours on Twitter. I mean, before it started to really go downhill and Facebook, and now I'm really into TikTok, right? But I don't post as much. I, I'm a lurking, I lurk in lots of conversations. So for, for me, lurking is sort of like regularly reading or viewing online communications of a community without participating in the conversations yourself. So you're lurking, you're consuming. And Social media, I think, again, one of the positive features of social media is it provides opportunities for us to learn about people who are different than us, right? And that's particularly important if we think about the epistemologies of ignorance literature that has showed that often privileged people are unaware of their own biases, their own ignorance, right? That we are liable to socially constructed ignorance of our own privilege. And social media can be a way of combating that, right? I can learn about people, um, people's lives. I can hear their voices in ways that challenge and um, help me undo some of my ignorance. Um, and lurking can be a way of doing it. So lurking, I think of as a non-intrusive practice of listening, right? So I can listen to other people. And that's really important because um, privileged people often have a habit of not being, of, of right. being intrusive rather than non-intrusive, right? So I think about, you know, that meme of, um, I don't know if you've seen this, the meme of the Kool-Aid man bursting through the wall and saying, <laughs> I'm here, right? So often, right, people who purport to be allies, right, or who privileged people often kind of burst into conversations. Um, and to understand this, I draw on um, a useful term um, from Shallon Sullivan she, that she developed, uh, she coined, ontological expansiveness. So... Right. She describes this as a habit of white privilege where white folks are often socialized into feeling entitled to enter spaces. She um, draws in a story from, I think, Patricia Williams of um, white folks on a tour of Harlem and feeling entitled to enter a black church and sort of gawk at the people in the church, right? So this- Yeah, while the service was occurring. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. we're just on a tour. We're here to to watch you, right? So there are ways in which she thinks this is a habit of white privilege that we can be socialized into thinking that we're entitled to enter spaces and enter- 
conversations. And so I draw, I draw that um, to think about, we see lots of examples of this online. So I talk about online ontological expansiveness as all of those moments where we'll see, say, for example, people of color talking about some issue of racism um, on the internet and white people jumping into the conversation and hijacking the conversation towards their own interests and needs, right? Either feeling defensive and feeling attacked, right? Or even if they're well-intentioned allies, directing the conversation towards, well, how can I be a, a good ally? How can I help? How does this affect me? Right. So, sea lioning, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. have a question here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so that's a kind of ontologically expansive habit that I think we want to avoid as knowers online. Like we can have virtues of being inquisitive. We can be curious. We can also be, um, it's a virtue to be open-minded. But when these virtues lead us to towards being ontologically expansive, we can actually do harm to online communities. And so lurking can be epistemically beneficial in that it can be this non-intrusive practice of listening. But that said, there are also lots of problems with lurking, right? It's also kind of creepy, right? So it's a, mm. a creepy kind of objectifying practice in many ways, right? So I draw on Cynthia Tanley's paper, I think it's a reevaluation of ignorance, where she develops this account of what she calls the spectator collector mode of knowledge production, where it's kind of an objectifying way of collecting knowledge about somebody or some community. I come, I observe you, I sort of... Um, suck up little bits of knowledge from watching you and then I take it away, right? The specter, spectator collector detached observing mode of watching. And I think um, lurking can easily be like that, right? So sure. um, privileged people lurking in spaces for marginalized people can be doing that in an objectifying and voyeuristic way. So one of the things that a virtuous lurker needs to do is to figure out when am I not wanted in this conversation, right? People often signal like in blogs, like who this blog is for. And if this blog is not for you, then you should not be lurking in it, right? If this conversation is not for folks like you, right? Then a virtuous lurking tells us this is this is not for me. I need to turn away and respect the, the integrity of this space. Um, there's also another sort of problem with lurking um, is that it, it can also be a result of kind of a lack of epistemic courage, right? So here I draw on some of um, Jose Medina's work on epistemic friction as a really useful practice for unlearning our ignorance, right? So um, I gain epistemic friction when my beliefs and assumptions are are challenged, right? I run into this friction with other beliefs and views which challenge my own way of thinking about things, and I can learn stuff from that. Well, if I only lurk and never really talk to pe marginalized people or people who don't share my identity, I'm not going to have my beliefs and assumptions challenged in the way that's going to generate significant right. epistemic friction. So sometimes folks need to have the courage to step outside their comfort zone and engage in conversations with people different than them, right? I think a lot of this is what Marila Lagones talked about in terms of world traveling, like really hanging out with people and getting to know people and living in their worlds. So sometimes lurking can be kind of a cowardly way of avoiding that. So I think being a virtuous person online involves like really using our practical wisdom to think carefully about these questions of, you know, if we think about the, you know, doctrine of the mean, like, what's the right amount of courage to, <laughs> to use in this situation, right? When, when to engage, like the, the, the virtuous person online engages at the right time in the right ways, right? In the right, for the, <laughs> the right, right reasons. Tools. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I need to think about all of these different virtues of open-mindedness, curiosity, trustworthiness, um, inquisitiveness, right? 
um, open-mindedness, all of these virtues, and I have to figure out how to balance them and do it in ways which are respectful of other people's communities, which help me unlearn some of my ignorance, but not in ways that are going to be destructive of other people's spaces and not going to treat them as mere objects of, of study for me in a kind of objectifying way. Right. Very good. Right. And I guess part of it would also have to be to, um, uh, to avoid the stance that um, uh, those conversations and spaces are your resources. Yes, that they're <laughs> yeah. here for me, yeah, not yeah, for yeah, other yeah. people. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. Um, very good. So, um, you know, Karen, you've been very generous with your time, and I, I just want to make sure that before uh, um, uh, before we before we end our discussion today, you know, the book closes with an appendix, and I, I want to make sure that we uh, we have a chance to, uh, uh, to to talk a little bit about this. Um, and the appendix discusses sort of, you know, this is not how you put it, uh, but uh, I hope you'll uh, accept mm-hmm. it. Normative hazards, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. of internet research as such, almost, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, ways in which um, uh, philosophers and other internet researchers uh, can harm or wrong those persons who form part of the object of their study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, so, and again, this is a nice segue. This sort of, you know, one way say, is the internet there? Is whatever's happening on yes. the internet the resource for my research program? Yes. Um, can sort of, you know, uh, yeah, there's an obvious sense in which the answer is yes if you're an internet researcher. There's another sense in which the, um, that stance, that, 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 that posture one might take can be normatively problematic mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. So it turns out that the internet raises sort of distinctive questions that are slightly differently formulated from the standard IRB kinds of questions about the research ethics that are mm-hmm. in play when uh, when studying the internet. Um, I thought it was a, a, a really nice sort of culmination of uh, of the, 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 the book. Um, so tell us a bit about the appendix. Yeah, thanks. So um, I really wrote this to be hopefully helpful to folks in my field, right? So um, uh, the Association of Internet Researchers has been thinking about ethical guidelines for research for going on 20 years, right? Their first guidelines came out in 2002. And so they're really helpful resources, but there are particular kinds of subsets of those questions that I think come up particularly for philosophers that I wanted to think through myself in to get kind of straight with myself about how I wanted to do this book in an ethical way and maybe help our community think through some of these issues. So the first issue is privacy, right? So we have this often idea of the internet as just like a public square, right? And the people are there, they're putting, they're tweeting things. And if their account isn't locked, it's just there. And I can use that in my research. Um, No problem, right? Philosophers often love to use case studies or use an example. And something that I think can be kind of beguiling about the internet is we don't have to come up with sort of like hypothetical thought experiments. There can often be the perfect tweet there that we can analyze, right? Um, And I think we have to be careful about that. And one of the reasons we have to be careful about that is not only sort of like respecting the privacy expectations of folks, right, who might not be aware that there are researchers out there lurking and reading their tweets, but also think about the issue of context collapse. So this is something that I've written about elsewhere. So context collapse happens when various different um, contexts are blurred or merged together, right? So right. somebody might post a tweet thinking that only their followers or some other subset of people are going to see it. But if I 
reproduce their tweet in uh, my article or my book, it's going to be exposed to a whole bunch of other people that they um, had no control over and no thought of. And there can be consequences for them. Um, it's particularly important to think about this when we think about marginalized people who are disproportionately targeted for online harassment. Um, we have to really think carefully about folks who are being harassed or might be liable to being harassed that are scholarship where we quote um, various kinds of users' tweets or use their social media contacts in our own research. We can be exposing them to new audiences that might want to engage in coordinated attacks against them. So it, there's issues of justice here that we have to think about. And so in the appendix, I talk through what are some ways that we can protect privacy of um, users and people that we um, want to study. And I talk about my own habits of, um, I just developed a practice that if I wanted to um, write about somebody and, and especially marginalized people who might be vulnerable to harassment, I would just reach out to them and I say, hey, um, here's a copy of this chapter, like a draft I'm working on. Would you be okay if I uh, wrote about um, your tweet or use your um, example in this way. And what's nice about that is it avoids that spectator collector mode of knowledge production, right. right? I'm engaging with them. I'm taking the participant stance. They can call me out and say, no, you've misrepresented me, right? They are now engaged in the knowledge production with me. Um, or they that, could just opt out and just say, I, yeah, I don't want, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want, I don't want to be a, uh, be a participant, a set piece in this. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And that respects their agency. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's, an, I think, an important part of internet research ethics and also something that I think is important. So that protects like the targets of our study. But another issue I'd love for our community to also think about is ways that we can also protect researchers. Right. So there's increasingly like harassment of researchers who do public scholarship and in particular marginalized people and members of the academy are often targeted for online harassment. And I think as a community, we need to think really carefully about as we are advising all of these young scholars who want to do applied philosophy, how can we help them develop tools of you know, basic online security? How can we provide resources for them to protect themselves? But also how can we educate our deans and the chairs of our departments about how to react if a scholar is attacked for work that they're doing about the right. internet? And um, uh, I'll just mention in case this is useful for you, um, Bob, or our other folks, right? There's this amazing um, research um, paper called Best Practices for Conducting Risky Research and Protecting Yourself from Online Harassment by Alice Marwick, Lindsay Blackwell, and Catherine Lowe. And they actually have fact sheets that you can give to your deans to say, okay, here's what, here's what we need to be doing preemptively to protect scholars who might be subject to online harassment. And also, here, here's how we can react if they are attacked. So I think we also need to think as a community of scholars about how we can protect people. And then another set of issues that I want to think about is I also had to confront my own lurking practices, right, as a philosopher, and think about the ways in which I, um, my own positionality, right? So during COVID, um, I really wanted to hear more and understand better how um, disabled folks were reacting to COVID, right? How it's shaping their lives. And that challenged some of my own biases or ignorance about that as an able-bodied person. So I'm working in these communities. I'm learning a lot from them, right? If in an article I want to cite them or talk about something um, that I learned from these communities, I mean, I can cite them, I can give them credit, but also think about the fact that um, a lot of online content creators are not part of the reward system of academia, right? So if I publish a paper, maybe I publish a not, I, I can get tenure, maybe I can get invited to 
some fancy conferences and fly around the world to do these right. things. But um, I, a citation for them doesn't mean the same as it does for me. And so I think in the academy, we also need to think about what are ways that we can reorient the resources of the academy to recognize the value that a lot of people on the internet are creating for us as an intellectual community, but they we don't have a good reward system for for rewarding the kind of intellectual work that they're doing. So I talk about what are things that I try to do as an individual scholar to um, compensate or support the work of people who I've learned a lot from in, in doing this work, but that's only sort of individual piecemeal work. We also need to think as a community about how we can restructure the academy in ways that are more just and also use the internet to so kind of support um, the work of content creators who are really part of our intellectual community in these sort of blurred blurred boundaries that we're living with now. Well, that sounds fabulous. Um, and uh, again, a very nice um, capstone to uh, a really rich uh, work of, of philosophy and internet scholarship and um, uh, uh, and much else. Um, so, Karen, um, I, you know, it, we've we've reached our time, um, but I, I, I want to thank you for joining me uh, for New Books in Philosophy, and more importantly, thank you for writing your book. Thank you so much, Rob. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for inviting it's me. It's been a real, real pleasure. Um, uh, so let's thank the listeners. Thank you, listeners, for joining uh, our discussion. Uh, I've been talking to Karen Frost-Arnold. Her new book is published with Oxford University Press. It is titled, Who Should We Be Online? A Social Epistemology for the Internet. Um, it's, it was a really uh, a pleasure. It was a great pleasure to read. I learned a lot. I recommend it highly. Um, you've been listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now. <laughs>